0: Hello, I'm Mark Rubo. I'm Managing Director of Readings, which is a a small independent chain of bookshops in Melbourne, Australia. And this is our Readings Conversations. And it's a, a series where I talk to People that I like in the publishing and writing game, and people that I find interesting, and I hope that you'll find our conversations interesting too. Well, today I'm I'm with um, Craig Munro, who's uh, had a very distinguished career as an editor and as a publisher and as an academic, and now has uh, probably describes himself as a writer, don't you, Craig? And uh, and a judge. You're judging the Miles Franklin Award, and uh, you're just telling me about the Olga Masters award, short story awards. So yes. That's right. So anyway, Craig, thank you so much for coming in. It's um, My pleasure. Yeah, it's terrific to have you here. Perhaps we could, I mean, your career to me is fascinating because you're a little bit older than me, so started in the book trade earlier uh, in a wonderful small press in Queensland, University of Queensland Press. So you could tell us a bit about how how that started? I think you were a journalist at first, weren't you? And- yes.
1: My My options after leaving school were law or journalism and I much preferred the idea of uh, leading the exciting life of a cub reporter to being buried away in the back vaults of uh, an old city legal firm and uh, I I gravitated fairly quickly to sub-editing and I just loved that sense of uh, not just engagement but but I guess what this, to what, what did a sub editor do on the, a paper? The sub editor is is the equivalent of the book editor, right? So, so you cut bits out, and e- exactly yeah. in those days, all of the uh, uh, all of the stories were typed out on old fashioned typewriters on small p- pieces of copy paper, and each <laughs> paragraph was on a separate piece of paper. So I'd sit there, age seventeen, around this desk, late at night. Rearranging paragraphs—it was—it was a wonderful <laughs> feeling.
0: You didn't get them mixed up.
1: Well, that was the idea to uh, to, to improve them uh, and, right. and to, to make them read in the uh, approved manner, which was an inverted pyramid. So you we, you found the the most uh, attention-grabbing paragraph, and that went first. Yes, and then the next. Most important, and so on down, till the tail, which could then be cut off, depending on how much oh, space you oh, had. Right.
0: all oh, right right. So you could sort of get rid of it if you didn't have the. Yes. You've got the most important bits at the start. So then, how did um, that move into into a publishing career?
1: I was studying literature subjects at night, and uh, in fact, my university studies were paid for by the newspaper, which was remarkably... Mm -hmm.
0: um, That was the Courier Mail?
1: Benevolent, yes. Not then owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, owned by the Herald and Weekly Times, actually. Oh, right. And uh, uh, one of the subjects I did was American literature. And the lecturer who who was the most inspiring was Frank Thompson. Right. Uh, A very flamboyant character who, who used to... Sachet into the lecture hall with a a, a brightly coloured scarf s- cinched at the at the at the throat yeah. in, in these long Nehru uh, shirts, <laughs> right, and uh, side so big sideburns coming. Yeah. <laughs> I guess because I'd never really been exposed to American writing to any degree before, this was a revelation to me, and Frank just made. The work of so many American writers—Hemingway, Fitzgerald, um, Melville—starting from the uh, late 18th century and going right through to the to the 1950s and 60s—and I just right. fell in love with American literature. Right. At the end of of the year, they were year-long courses.
0: Yeah.
1: Frank uh, said at the final class, "Anyone who wants to come and have a look over the press, because he was." in fact, the manager of the University of Queensland Oh, so he Press. taught and ran the... He was one of several lecturers, uh, so he didn't have a... A full load. A, a full load, but he gave pretty regular lectures. Uh, he lectured mainly on fiction. Right. And uh, that was uh, 1971. And I'd done f- pretty well in that course, so I... Put my hand up and said, "I'd oh, I'd love to come and have a look at the, the the publishing operation here." And uh, he offered me a job,
0: right, just like that.
1: Yes, one of one of his junior staff left, ah. and he had to find someone quickly, ah. and, and, and he, he, he offered s- me a job to start
0: in a week's time or two weeks time. And did he doing it? Edit- so he knew you were a sub editor. Yes, so he said, oh, yes, he you can he, edit books.
1: <laughs> that's right. Although I was. I was slightly misled in that the first work that I was doing was was extremely um, menial, mainly f- photocopying page proofs and doing other other sorts of uh, w- work like that i didn't really get i wasn't unleashed on a manuscript for for a few mm. months
0: i th- I think in your wonderful book undercover you said uh, one of the jobs was you had to carry the boardroom table up the stairs <laughs>
1: That was a, a hernia-inducing <laughs> right. effort. Uh, I think it weighed about a tonne. It was uh, fully five metres long and uh, very wide, made of laminated planks of Queensland silky oak. Ah. Absolutely an, an absolute work of art. Right. Um, but how we ever got it up those narrow flight of stairs mm. is... Um, in fact, the, bil- the press is no longer in that building, and right. I'm sure they haven't been able to get the... It's still up there. I, I'm sure it is, and I'd say they'll have to take the roof off to get it out.
0: Right. <laughs> so apart from lugging furniture around and photocopying, were you actually let loose on any uh, works or...?
1: At first I, I was uh, assigned to scholarly publishing because in the early 70s that was still uh, the main part of the UQP list. And so I, I seem to recall the first book I worked on had had the title Alcoholism as a Social Problem, right. and uh, I found that very, very heavy going. <laughs> uh, it was only when I was assigned a couple of books for the new Asian and Pacific writing series uh, where I, I had my first taste of fiction editing. Right, and you, you liked it. Very much. Right. And I fell in love with that aspect of publishing.
0: And so the Asian Pacific series, that was was that a Thompson initiative or it where did was, that come from?
1: It was really one of a couple of very significant uh, initiatives that came from uh, a series of drinking sessions between Michael Wilding, who was then teaching literature at the University of Sydney, and Frank Thompson, who of right. course was was a great... Drinker and socializer, hmm. and it—it it was in various bars all over the country that he generated <laughs> uh, uh, some of his most creative publishing ideas. And Michael pitched to him this this idea that uh, there should be a, a series of creative writing, primarily fiction, uh, from all the countries of the um, Asia Pacific region. So there were New Zealand volumes, Korean, Japanese, Chinese. Uh, the two books that I worked on which launched the series were uh, a very interesting n- novel uh, about post-World War Two Indonesia right. uh, by uh, I think a former communist writer, mm. akdiat K. Mahaja. Right. And it had been translated by a journalist and... And I think the journalist had died, so I had no access to the translator. And the translation, <laughs> either the translation was terrible or the original novel was not very good, but... Uh, so you had to craft it into... Well, well it was... It, I, I'd be interested to find out more about the origins of that novel because right. Bahasa Indonesia, which was the language of the new Indonesian state, mm. w- was a th- pretty much a synthesised language... It, it didn't have – it combined Malay and, and yes, various yeah. other ingredients and I guess some, some of the old Dutch words yeah, and yeah. so on. Um, but it would be interesting to see whether a more sympathetic translation or a more literary translation right. uh, might be possible. But the other yeah. book w- was an absolute stunner and that was a collection of stories called Tropical Gothic by the um, Filipino writer Nick Joaquin. Right. And uh, it helped me to develop a real passion for short story collections that then went on to working with quite a number of Australian writers and and launching their careers with with collections of stories.
0: Um, Thompson was an American, wasn't he? Californian. Californian. So he was from that flower power sort of, was he that kind of?
1: No, yeah. Frank would never have been flower power. I think he, he, he was very uh, svelte and uh, very cool in in the sense of being very smart and switched on. Right. Definitely not a hippie. No. His first job, I think, was acting as an assistant to the director of the Michigan University Press. Right. And uh, like me, he fell in love with publishing as a result of w- right, working right, there.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting. So um, I remembered as a bookseller, I mean, UQP published, um, I think, some John Updike, didn't it? Was that something? Was yes, that Frank's- I edited uh, the Australian edition
1: of The Coup, which was a novel set in Africa about an Idi Amin character, oh, yeah. dictator. Um, which is not normally counted among Updike's great works, but uh, I thought it was pretty, pretty good. And uh, I mean, what what Frank? I, I don't think it's possible to overestimate Frank's influence on the the development of UQP's literary publishing, and uh, nor on the development of Australian publishing in the mm. the early seventies. He was, as you you. Probably aware he was the president of the ABPA, the, the Publishers Association. No,
0: I didn't. 6970.
1: No. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he brought a real international flavour and especially to what was then a very uh, British influence. It was very much
0: so, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It, was,
1: it was pretty much a colonial outpost of British yeah. publishing. Yeah. And Frank swept in with all of these <laughs> uh, can do American. Ideas, uh, under, underscored by his own literary interests, he'd done a master's thesis uh, at university on uh, Conrad and Ford Maddox Ford, right? Uh, which he showed me once, but only very reluctantly. <laughs> right. Um, but he he was he, so he came into publishing, bringing a, a very much a literary and illiterate. Interest, whereas most of the the British publishers who were installed to run uh, the Australian arms of, of the big firms in in London were salespeople, because essentially yes, they were just selling. They the were British, distributing uh, British product. As they got to be more interest in uh, original publishing in Australia, though, they, they started to add on a little bit of window dressing. Yes. Uh, with their own Australian authors, until it gathered momentum yes. much later.
0: Um, it was always fascinating to me um, that UQP, which in Brisbane, which was, forgive me, it was probably the rest of Australia perceived as a rather provincial town and also uh, politically presided over by a very right-wing reactionary government, uh, that should this, there was this little cultural... Hub there of UQP, how, how did that come about? I think it really,
1: pretty much, all comes down to Frank Thompson's right. vision and his energy and his his enthusiasm and his courage, not just in in trying to establish a very uh, free thinking liberal publishing list, but also. Trying to do that within you know, a very uh, narrow-minded university bureaucracy, mm, mm. and Fra- Frank has has written about this uh, in a, in a book that I uh, produced for UQP's fiftieth anniversary in mm. in nineteen ninety eight. Frank wrote an essay about that, and it's right. It's uh, he he describes the difficulties of of working in that very repressive environment, and I, I certainly having come from journalism in the late 60s into publishing, uh, it didn't take long before uh, before I, uh, Frank and I ran up against uh, what a repressive regime we were uh, working under. Already oh, you had a few um, run-ins. Or... Well, yes, yes, we did. But uh, it, what tends to happen is, is that uh, certainly more so, I think, then, self censorship, right, it is always the the biggest threat to mm. to good good publishing. And uh, when M- Michael Wilding had another one of his great ideas, which was <laughs> uh, over a beer, no doubt in in <laughs> Sydney, suggested to Frank that having got a paperback poetry list underway in nineteen seventy with David Malouf and. Rodney Hall and Michael Dransfield—an um, amazing first list to, to start. Yes, what yeah. would become probably the finest collection of contemporary poetry in, in the ensuing decades. Uh, Michael said to Frank, "You are starting to do paperback poetry. Why not fiction?" <laughs> and so Frank decided, about the same time as as I joined UQP, to start publishing. Fiction, and so
0: original fiction.
1: In original, paper f- f- original fiction in paper, yes, rather than. And it was in parallel, not just with the the original poetry, but also with the Asian Pacific series. All of those lists virtually started off in the early nineteen seventies. And one of the first books that Frank Thompson was offered for the first um, fiction list was Frank Morehouse's book, *The Americans' Baby*. Right, which had very challenging sexual yes. uh, material in it, and Frank Thompson and Frank Morehouse were also drinking buddies by that stage. <laughs> right, and Frank Thompson r- read it and thought, I- "I've just got to run this past the Vice Chancellor." And uh, I tell a story in the book where um, it's in yes, in where where, yeah. where um uh. The Vice-Chancellor phones Frank at home while he's in the shower and Frank's standing dripping by the phone while Zelman Cowan, the, who was a distinguished international legal jurist, mm. uh, suggested it mightn't be such a good idea to, to publish that. I, I think it was perhaps a a, a real missed opportunity because I, I, I believe that in the 70s Frank Morehouse was probably the most exciting writer or at least right. the equal most exciting yes. writer, in yeah. my view.
0: So you were a bit disappointed in, in that decision?
1: Only uh, retrospectively. I didn't uh, find out about this for oh, I see. Oh, for, right. for several years. Oh, right. Oh. Uh, be, because this had all happened probably in the months before I actually... Joined them. So, right. Yes, right. And, and it was... It was another several months before I started working on the Mm. Asian and Pacific series. So, uh, But the the first novel I worked on for the Australian novel that I worked on was uh, Living Together, which also had uh, some very interesting... uh,
0: That was by Michael Michael Wilding. Michael Wilding. It was Michael's
1: first novel. Mm. And I, um, I was looking for an Australian painting for the cover of that and Michael suggested Peter Powditch's one from his "Sun Torso" series, which were all naked women in with bikinis, yeah. and uh, and Frank Thompson looked at the the one that was a full frontal nude, and he said, "I just don't think we can afford to take the risk on that." <laughs> so I sent a note to Michael Wilding saying, "I'm I'm sorry that we, I keep forgetting we live, live in a repressive state that we can't have pubic hair on the front cover," and Michael. Wrote back, pubic hair? What do you mean, pubic hair? <laughs> Frank's got this on the, must have this on the brain. And then down at the bottom of the letter, stuck to the, <laughs> with sticky tape, it was a tuft.
0: Of something. Of, of
1: something, which is still there in the UKP editorial <laughs> files,
0: I'm pleased to say. So things are getting pretty exciting in Queensland, um, in spite of uh, Bjorkie Peterson and your were. Getting more involved in the editing process, and tell us a bit what, what does an editor actually do? you, know, you just um, correct spelling mistakes or do you rearrange the paragraphs as you did as a sub-editor or: Well,
1: I learned another lesson about what an editor does with Michael's novel "Living Together," because oh. I, I did rearrange not just his paragraphs but also cut his sentences into half or into sometimes into three pieces because he had these very long, languid sentences. And uh, because as a newspaper sub, you almost never referred your changes to the journalist, I thought, oh, Michael all will right. see the changes at proof stage. And, uh, and, of course, he saw them with no prior warning that I'd chopped all <laughs> of his sentences into small pieces. And he was furious. Oh really? Yeah. Yes. So that was a f- that was a great lesson to to learn, um, and uh, I quickly realised that editing creative writing for a book was vastly different to editing a short news
0: <laughs> item. Right about a robbery. So it has to be a much more collaborative process, I presume. Or that's that's absolutely the
1: essence of. Editing is yeah. the collaboration between the author and the editor and I write a lot about that in my memoir. In fact, that's that's
0: really at the heart of my mem- memoir. Yeah. And I suppose you um, can build up quite strong personal relationships with writers in that process. Is that, can you tell us about some of your encounters with writers over the years where that's happened?
1: I guess my favourite authors have turned into very good friends and that is, I suppose, an indication that the collaboration obviously worked and worked well right. because... Yes. And, and I think sometimes an editorial collaboration like that only works well when the editor is in tune with
0: the, the, the work and the author... Mm. You write quite a lot in your in your memoir uh, about working with Peter Carey which well I found personally very fascinating having known Peter for quite a long time and uh, your descriptions in, of him are very uh, seem very real to me. Tell us a bit about um, there's a lovely chapter in your memoir about you go when you first met Peter you I think you've been corresponding a little bit. That's the, that's right.
1: I, again Michael Wilding was was indirectly responsible for my encountering Peter Carey because he he was running a short story supplement called Tabloid Story in the early seventies, and mm. I'd read a Peter Carey story in there, and and so I extracted Peter's phone number out of Michael and phoned phoned him up and said, Have you got any more stories where I'm I'm looking to produce a collection fairly quickly mm. to we had literature board funding to bring out three new collections of fiction and I had two and needed a third. Oh. So I didn't have any really great expectations for for what Peter might send me but he he was a bit dubious because I hadn't I, I had no idea at that stage that he'd been trying to get books of fiction published for 10 years. And had had publishers offering and f- failing to deliver, ah, right. and uh, finally, I come along <laughs> out of the blue, phone him up, and say, "If you got from any Queensland? more stories, <laughs> that's right from <laughs> Queensland, totally off the radar." Yeah. And so he sent me up a batch, and they were just stunning, and incredible. Right. And I'd only been editing fiction for something like eighteen months. So that must have been quite an exciting moment. I was in my early 20s and I'm reading these typescript short stories and and thinking I'd I'd just never read anything like it. And I'd I'd done an Australian literature course the year before, again a full year course, and I'd read a lot of Australian writing and I'd really not encountered anything that had prepared me Mm. for the impact of of those Mm. early Peter Carey stories. So... Uh, we contracted, uh, contracted it, uh, and under the title A Fat Man in History," and it was to be published in
0: 1974. So, so when you were talking about the funding, was that for three s- discrete collections of short stories? Right? It was in the first year of the Literature Board, right, 1973,
1: right. and they were doing and they were exper- ber- experimenting ber- with different ways of assisting publishers as well right. as authors, and th- they were wanting to look at the the different economics of printing in different parts of Australia and offshore. So th- the arrangement was that these three works of fiction, one would be printed in Sydney, which was the right. fat man in history. Right. One would be printed in, I think, Adelaide, <laughs> and the other would be printed in Hong Kong. Right. Uh, and they'd all receive
0: quite significant literature board uh, funding as right. a result. Mm-hmm. So so that's what the Fat Man Project was, was one of those? It, it was
1: very much um, uh, n- not inspired by the Literature Board, but, but very much uh, part of that wave of early mm. um, euphoria that came with the Whitlam mm. government and the increased funding for yes.
0: the arts. So in one sense, probably not quite true, but if it hadn't been for that funding and and you seeing that that story and tabloid story, Peter Kerry may not may still be writing advertising copy.
1: I find that hard to believe, but uh, he'd been trying for ten years. Mm. He'd had a he'd had a London agent, a very good London agent, Deborah Rogers, for five years, and she'd not been able to get even a short story published. Right. Uh, Michael Wilding, and um, Clem Christensen, who was the editor of Mianjin yes. for many years, Clem. Clem was was one of Michael's most enthusiastic supporters, published two or three of oh, Peter's, you mean, Peter's yeah. stories yeah. in Mianjin. Right. Yeah. Uh, and had, in fact, encouraged Peter to think about a collection of stories. But right. Peter only wanted to write novels. The, the right. stories were just a little exercise that he did on the right. side. He'd written four unpublished novels right. by the time right. I phoned him up in, at yeah. his advertising agency in, in Melbourne, so... We uh, we agreed to meet up in 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 May 1974 at his agency in um, Middle Park, right near yeah, near yeah. near Albert Park. Yeah, it was an old converted warehouse, typical of a slick inner city advertising <laughs> yes. agency,
0: very, very trendy in those days. That's right, yeah. and
1: and like UQP, it had this enormous boardroom table, <laughs> and uh, I. Because UQP was among its many initiatives at that time was producing new media stuff. So it had a microfilm publishing division. It had an audiovisual. I mean, these were tiny, <laughs> but yes. they were still discrete divisions. And the audiovisual division had a, a series that had just started of writers on tape, so taping Australian writers. And uh, they gave me a great big reel to professional reel-to-reel tape recorder to take with me on this trip and said I mean Peter Carey had not had a book published but they said look have tape an interview with him and see how it goes so I I dragged this along (laughs) to the spasm advertising agency and uh, we set it up on this huge boardroom table and taped a fantastic interview Probably not quite as good as the one you and I are doing. No. But, no. but still, it was... It was up there. <laughs> I found out a lot more about Peter than, I, uh, than I'd than i known before and uh, he told me about his writing ambitions and his feelings about advertising and being torn between his writing life and his advertising life. Mm. And uh, after an hour, I, I thought I'd better check and see what the recording <laughs> quality was like because we didn't have it... Uh, it wasn't here like here with a, with a sound uh, engineer in the, in the booth. It's this just was just us and the tape recorder and, and my total technical incompetence. When I pressed the play button, there was nothing on the tape. Oh, no. <laughs> we had just failed to record anything. Peter must have witnessed far worse things doing 30 second advertising commercials with huge budgets. <laughs> uh, so he just dragged me upstairs to the kitchen. And uh, we drank a lot of beer and got the tape recorder going and spent the whole afternoon recording a very long, shambolic, <laughs> expletive-ridden
0: interview. Right. I think you quote some of uh, some passages from that in your, in your book, which I, yes. I personally found very amusing. Um, I think there's one... one Thing I think he rails against, you know, why would he ever want to be a writer? That's <laughs> right. It's
1: a boring, fucking, insular, silly <laughs> occupation with his
0: words. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes, Geordie Williamson in his review of my book in The Australian said that that line alone was worth the price of admission for the book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love those bits and sort of, I mean, Peter, as we both know, can be quite um abrasive. And Acerbic. <laughs> Acerbic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a he's got a wicked sense of
1: humor mm. which maybe it was my journalism background because journalists have got to develop a fairly hard shell right, and and yeah. journalists also are looking for things that are a bit edgy and a bit sort of out there and Peter was nothing if not edgy. Yes. Uh and maybe it's a Melbourne thing. Mm. Uh there's a kind of Barry Humphreys element to Peter where he's i think Peter is sending himself up at the same time as he's he's being sharp and iconoclastic right he's he's taking the piss out of himself but you need to you need to be tuned into that yeah. and and i picked up on that from the moment i shook his hand really we we got on like a house on right. fire
0: yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, you, you worked together for a long time after that. Um, you did take some time off, though, from UKP, didn't you, to do your book on... Yes, Stevens that's right. Yeah. Yes, I,
1: I edited Peter's first... edited and published his first two books, which were both story collections, yeah. The Fat Man in History and War Crimes. War Crimes were longer, more fantasy-style mm. stories, uh, almost genre publishing, it, it, very much on the edge between literary and and fantasy yeah. uh, at, at at that time. Uh, Peter was always ahead of the game. That, that's mm-hmm. always been one of the great things about him and well, what made him such a hot property as an advertising creative right. director as well. And uh, I had started getting very interested in um, The history of Australian literature, and especially the history of Australian editing and publishing, right? Partly through my experiences with Xavier Herbert, which we might also talk about at some some stage, and uh, so I'd I'd got interested in this this editor and publisher called uh, Percy Reginald P.R. Inky Stevenson, Mm. who was a Queensland Rhodes Scholar. Right. And a, a, a wild, a wild character who'd been a flamboyant communist uh, at Oxford, um, and uh, th- then set up two publishing companies in Sydney in the Depression. Began writing for a fascist magazine yeah. in Sydney, and yeah. ended up being uh, interned for three and a half years in, in World War Two. So this, right. this became my my doctoral thesis, and I. Um, I left my job as fiction editor in 1980 and, and and worked in the English department for
0: three and a half years. On this on this book, which was then published. It was published yeah. by Melbourne University Press. Yeah, yeah.
1: In, in fact, my two best experiences as an author have been with Melbourne. I think Melbourne justly uh, wears the mantle of City of Literature because <laughs> I, I I think it is... I was mentioning this to to my publicist yesterday that uh, the, the difference from a publishing or from a literary point of view between Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane could not be more stark um, mm. in, in that publishing is taken seriously in Melbourne. Writers are taken seriously. Mm. People in Melbourne know what book editors do. I don't know whether it's just... <laughs> something in the air whereas in, in 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 sydney it's such a brash environment and and, and writers and, unless they uh you know best selling fantasy writers or something ba- barely f- f- rate any kind of a mention you know the 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 few literary writers who live in, in sydney try try to keep as low a profile as possible <laughs> I'm sure, there's be a few that disagree with you. There. <laughs> so, uh, so MUP, I, I've I've what about found David Malouf. <laughs> David Malouf. Now, he's Sydney? Y- yes, but he keeps a he keeps a low right profile. Uh, although he's he's remarkably generous with with his time, and uh, he, I mean, I think David is is in a class of his own. Mm. Um, he, he's Patrick White without without all of the irascible, <laughs> grumpy attitudes and uh, difficult to get on with. I never met Patrick White, right. but I he, he was uh, his reputation was pretty uh, for being very for savage. Them. Whereas David is incredibly generous, and yes. uh, he's he's probably the most articulate person that I've ever encountered. Yeah. Both in his pronouncements in public, but all, but also as a writer, he he
0: he writes like an angel, David Malouf. Now you worked with David on Jono, didn't you? Yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. That was because that's a wonderful book. And uh... David Malouf, was, as
1: I mentioned earlier, in that first group of. Paperback poets yeah. that Frank Thompson published in, and Roger Macdonald published in 1970, and uh, Frank Thompson and David Malouf were not, because uh, David Malouf has never been a great, to my knowledge, a great drinker. Um, but certainly, uh, it, it was his influence on Frank Thompson that brought about the the paperback poetry list. In the nineteen sixties, poetry was only ever published in hardback, it was never yeah. published in paperback in Australia. Three or four hundred copies it was a yes. it was a large print run yeah. for poetry in the nineteen sixties. Um, and David Malouf suggested to Frank Thompson that paperback was the form in which he wanted his next book uh, to be uh, to be published and uh, uh at the same time he, he, was, he he'd let Frank know that uh, he he was writing a book about Brisbane uh, uh, based on his childhood mm. and and uh, early years in in, in Brisbane. And uh, that uh, that found its way onto my desk. Oh. And uh, even though I was editing the fiction list at that time. I'd not had any direct contact with David until I got this manuscript of mm. what became
0: uh, known as John O's first novel. Right, and that's sort of semi autobiographical, isn't it?
1: Very much so. Yeah, yeah. And my memory is that Frank Thompson, when he passed over the manuscript to me, said that this had started life as a memoir about Brisbane and I think Frank and David had also talked about doing a book on the old picture palaces of Australia because what a lot of people don't know about David but you quickly find out when you spend any time with him is that ever since his childhood he was a great cinema goer and Mm. and just loved the old picture palaces which are such a cultural feature of Australia yes, from the f- yes. 30s and 40s onwards, and a lot of them were, had fallen into disrepair with the march of television in the mm. in the 70s. So um, that was another project that Frank and uh, and David
0: had had, had, had talked, talked about. Hmm. Mm. And um, so I, out of that working with David, you sort of became quite close to him and. Um, Yes, n- never close in the way that I was with 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 Peter. Right. That's right, and because David was published, his novels were actually published. Subsequent novels were published overseas, weren't they? That's right. right.
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, and I think that was a disappointment to Frank, who, who was closer to David than right. really at that stage than than I was, mm. um, especially since. Uh, his second novel, an imaginary life mm. uh, I regard it as as his great masterpiece a, absolutely extraordinary work that's the one about of it yeah yeah mm. and uh, i was I, I I happened to be driving David Malouf to Canberra a couple of months ago, mainly because Zoe Rodriguez, from the copyright agency, was organising a gig, <laughs> launching that campaign for um, 100 writers you might have read. All oh, right yes, yes yes. And David was there was launching it in Canberra and she said oh he doesn't like flying I want someone to drive him and I've now got a weekender in the southern highlands on the way oh, to right. Canberra so I said I, I'd love to spend 3 hours chatting <laughs> with with David because I've always enjoyed his company and and published his poetry for right. for, for many years. Um and um
0: Yes, uh, so uh so we were talking about imaginary life, and uh, yes, in being published overseas. Yes, yeah. uh, and I was—I just happened to mention
1: that, and I'm sure I've mentioned it to him before—that uh, that imaginary life is my favourite of his novels. Mm. And he said, "You know, I wrote that in six weeks." <laughs> And at the same time, it was when he was still a tutor at Sydney University. <laughs> he was never ambitious. I love that about David. Right. <laughs> he he never wanted to be a professor. He didn't even want to be a lecturer. He was still, right. I think, a tutor right. in in English. He said, I wrote an imaginary Life in six weeks, the first handwritten draft, yeah. which I think he does. I'm not sure whether he still handwrites a draft. And at the same time, he said, I marked... Seven hundred university assignments and twelve hundred school English exam papers at the same time as writing a matric life, and uh, I I think that says all you need to know about David.
0: Now, after you after you'd finished um, your doctorate in the book on Inky, you. Um You were asked to go back to UQP, weren't you, by the new the new head, Laurie Laurie Muller. That's that's right. Uh,
1: I was um, I was more or less offered more work in the uh, in the academic area, doing perhaps a postdoc or doing some tutoring myself and and more research, Uh, but. I'd always had such a buzz out of book publishing. It had really got into my system. And when this opportunity came came up after Frank Thompson, who happened to be mar- happened to have been married to the head editor at, at UQP, and when they left to run Rigby's, uh, just uh, their timing wasn't great because Rigby's was closed down within a year of their... Jumping, oh, right. jumping ship from UQP, <laughs> and uh, they cast around, tried to find. Uh, they offered the job of director at UQP to John Iamanga. He was wary about it. They finally talked uh, Laurie Muller into who just left um, Lansdowne that to was, move back to Queensland. He he really was, was a Queenslander. He was yeah. a Queenslander who'd, who right. worked in Adelaide and Sydney for many years. Right. And he was—he still had his, I think, sixteen acres on top of a hill in Brisbane at mm. Brookfield, and uh, he was keen to get out of the corporate rat race, and uh, thought UKP sounded interesting. And uh, when he uh, took took the job of general manager of not just the press but also the bookshop, it came as a package. Mm. Uh, I applied for the job of publishing manager and and
0: uh, was in that role for about seventeen years. Right. So that was sort of because um, Laurie was came from a commercial background, didn't he? And he sales he, in hmm. the sales area. He yeah. was a a brilliant sales and marketing person. Um, but he was a very passionate Australian nationalist in a way that he believed in the culture, didn't he? And that's right. But he was ambitious for the press, if I remember. If I read that, he rightly. he w- he was, and
1: I've I've had to l- l- look back and and try to work out myself just what it was that turned UQP into the extraordinary publishing company that it was from the nineteen seventies yeah. up and to the turn of the century, and I I really think that it was passing on the. The Torch from Frank Thompson to Laurie Muller. Laurie didn't have Frank's kind of intellectual literary background, Mm -hmm. but he brought uh, an an extraordinary uh, gift for the publishing business, the business of books.
0: Yeah.
1: And I learnt... I learned a huge amount from Frank Thompson in the nineteen seventies. I, I, I then had to relearn from the whole uh, the, the book business um, f- from a, a managerial point of view. Mm. Uh, Laurie sent me to every ABPA <laughs> seminar that was right. going. I, I, I was on the the dawn flight. You know, <laughs> every, every few weeks to Sydney or <laughs> Melbourne, or in one case to Albury, Wodonga, to the Clyde Cameron School of Industrial Relations for a week long publishing <laughs> economics seminar, which Laurie ran a, along military lines because right. he'd been a, an officer in the Vietnam War. <laughs> and uh, this was talk about a boot camp. <laughs> it, it was, and it was in the middle of winter. It was, below freezing outside right. so you couldn't go anywhere you were you trapped. you were locked you were trapped
0: it mustn't have been a very nice experience because i don't think you mentioned it i didn't see it. it's not in the book is it, it? It, it it's not in the book
1: uh although i was very fortunate to to meet because we were all we were assigned teams and we had to develop a whole publishing company right. with a list and a marketing and business plan in three or four days, right. and my uh, the supervisor for my group was Peter Field, all right, From who was then sales director, uh, director at Penguin, at Penguin. Right. and uh, just such a lovely guy, and uh, n- just allowed the group to to make or, or, or come up with the ideas and and make the mistakes and and just mm-hmm. sort of gently. Steering us, um, yeah. and uh, it was worth it ju- uh, just just to uh, to spend two or three days with with Peter, who's uh, as as you would would know one of the one of the greats of of yeah. Australian um, mainstream publishing. Yes.
0: Um, so th- this time, as you say, it was it was Yuki B's golden years, and I suppose it was really. Once again, it was driven by Carey, who was now hitting the height of his career with particularly Oscar and Lucinda. That's right. And, yes, um, you write about in your memoir about the joys of the relationship, but also the frustrations because Carey had an overseas agent and had become discovered by overseas publishers, and they insisted on doing the editing, and so you felt a bit like,
1: well, removed, was it? Because I'd been so closely involved with the first two books, Mm. the two short story collections, then I peeled out and was really a freelance editor for the years when I was in the English department Mm. and that's when Peter's first novel, Bliss, was published and it was edited out of London by uh, Robert McCrum at Faber, a very distinguished young editor. Um, I was, I think and and again i've t- talked to people about this and i've had to realize that i felt a bit like a jilted lover right. in in the 1980s in, in terms of peter's having a continuing relationship with him as an as an editor i was now a publishing director at, at at UQP so i was involved very much on the sort of business side as well right, as on the yeah. on the creative side but suddenly I was having to deal with another editor who who was trying to stake his claim to Peter mm. as, as his discovery Yes. and uh, thinking, oh, this little company from the wilds of of, of northern Australia. Uh, and so the, there was quite a bit of professional jealousy, resentment. Mm. Um, Peter Carey's agent, Deborah Rogers, who, as I mentioned it, been his agent since the late '60s. Suddenly, after 12 years, now had marketable something to. Mm. Th- this was Paola time for <laughs> right. her as an agent. <laughs> she spent all that time. That's right, and now suddenly she was cracking the <laughs> cracking the uh, uh, the whip, mm. um, and that that sorted itself by the time uh, Oscar and Lucinda pretty much was published. We. We were starting to deal not just with Faber and in, in getting Australian, buying back Australian rights from mm. Faber, which mm. both Laurie and I resented deeply, mm. um, to dealing with Peter's agent on more or less equal terms with uh, Faber and whoever his American publisher mm. happened to be. It changed in the 80s and, mm. and
0: 90s. No, I remember. I think in the, in your uh, memoir, you it was a rather nice passage where um, you're working on Illywacker, and the overseas editor sent the thing, and you just just have a cast your eye over it and see if there's any glaring historical mistakes. And you made a rather nice right comment about that in your book. If you could yes tell us that,
1: yes, that's that's right. I uh, uh, I. I, I commented to it was to Robert McCrum, in fact, that uh, the narrator Herbert Badgery is 143 years old, and and so the reader is not going to expect uh, ac- any kind of accuracy uh, in his in his narrative, and uh, uh, m- more or less brushing off this suggestion that uh, that UQP's role was was simply to be a sort of Look, looking after the local colour and fact checking, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, Laurie and I both ended up having a good relationship with Robert McCrum, right. who's, who's, who's a lovely guy, and mm. and uh, and Faber's list is is just you know one of the one of the most desirable literary mm. lists of the twentieth century, yeah,
0: and. Um, so UQP is having all the success, and and but you do say that it, financially it was it was was a struggle for them to keep to keep going. A few things happened
1: in the in the nineteen nineties. Uh, the recession, of course, which you may, yes. may well remember, which hit books mm. quite hard, and UQP. On on the back of the success of Oscar and Lucinda, which sold hundreds of thousands yes. of copies, and Hugh Lund's over the top with Jim, which also sold hundreds of thousands of copies, we had this incredible spike in our um, profitability. And uh, we'd been getting an index grant for the univ- from the university. I've forgotten how much it was. Right. A couple of hundred thousand dollars a year or something, but it was indexed to go up with inflation. And Laurie thought, well, his aim had been to really give the the press real a commercial underpinning, so that it it, it wouldn't be subject to uh, pressure from the the university. Right. So he grandly uh, agreed, uh, or he suggested, I think, to the university uh, that uh, we cut ourselves loose from the index grant and received just a. A fixed amount oh. every year because it looked like that the press was was more commercially secure, and in fact, UKP was publi- had never published so many books. We were publishing fifty to sixty titles That's a year. Huge output, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and these were all new titles. So it was a, a huge amount of work, very big mm-hmm. um, investment, and uh, the. At, it was also the time when all the, the bigger multinationals had started setting up. Quite, they were getting very busy doing their own Australian publishing. So, was, they,
0: in a way, they'd seen how successful you were and thought McPhee, Gribble, and yeah, yes. they
1: they wanted a piece of that action. Yes. And 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 companies like Fremantle, UQP, McPhee, Gribble ha, had set up all of these, introduced all these great new mm. authors, and the mm. multinationals came along and and uh managed to harvest the likes of elizabeth jolly and and so on uh so our, our sales uh it became a much more crowded marketplace yeah the 80s really was that was the halcyon period yes. for for australian literary publishing yeah. um it literary publishing started to really go off the boil in the in the 90s it got tougher uh, our sales uh, didn't continue up; they they started dropping,
0: and so it was harder to break a new author, or it, or was just more competitive.
1: Well, it, it was a combination of, of all of those things, and in order to Peter Carey was our the one thing which had kept us going, and we um, but. Because he was also so successful, we had to pay larger and larger advances to keep publishing him, as we did up till 2000 Mm. and True History of the Kelly Gang. Yeah. But that was almost sort of... uh, It took so much of our cash reserves and our turnover to do that and uh, we had to commit so much of our small... Uh, staff to producing those books and giving them a huge push Yes, that it caused disaffection with other authors of mm. ours who could see that there was like a two <laughs> uh, there right. was a two-speed economy going <laughs> yes. at UQP yes. <laughs> so it had it had all kinds of I- I- issues yeah. and um but we went out with a bang with True History of a Kelly gang mm. winning a second booker yes amazing uh, um i think peter's only the the second uh novelist to have ever won two two mm. bookers and uh and, and and that again caused a second spike in profitability and um that was uh yeah it didn't uh, publishing's a publishing's a tough business and again as in the late 80s with the GST on books, which mm. just hammered hammered the book industry. Mm. Um, and UQP then struggled uh, again in the early 2000s. Yes. And then Laurie retired and and uh, I came to Melbourne to live for two years deciding to <laughs> live in a more civilised and sophisticated right. <laughs> environment.
0: <laughs> in your book, and just then, you've talked about sort of the, the multinationals who, who saw your... Successes of the small publishers, such as yourselves and McPhee Gribble, and said, "Oh, we've got to get in." So, started offering big advances and um, and and employing professional edit. Well, not necessarily A lot of editing was done for freelance, of course, mm. but, but clever publishers like oh, was Brian Johns at Penguin and yes. um, successor Ben Ball, and uh, so I mean, in one sense as a as a. As a reader and a retailer of books, I think, well, that's a great thing. You know, they're not just the colonial. They're actually investing in Australian culture and things. But you must feel that sort of ambivalent about that in a way. Yes, although having been out of active book
1: publishing for 10 years and, and now coming back into it as a reader, as a judge of the annual Miles Franklin Award, reading upwards of 60 or 70 novels every year, mm. I'm astonished at the energy and the professionalism of the publishing industry. Mm. Uh, from the smallest imprints, the great independents like Black Ink and um, uh, Scribe and UQP, Giramondo in particular, mm. is very, very interesting yeah. uh, uh, outfits text of course is is um michael hayward's i think one of the finest publishers going going around at the moment uh so and 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 the the level of professionalism in the um in, in the larger firms um, Allen and unwin mm. th- their publishing is is second to none randoms penguins uh it's such a different world to the publishing world I grew up in in the mm. 1970s. Couldn't be more different.
0: No. So you think on, on whole it's for the better? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, ab- absolutely. Mm. We, we drank too much in the 1970s <laughs> and, and we went to too many uh, parties. And uh, I was pleased to see that uh, at the Brisbane Writers' Festival a few weeks ago, they actually had a secret um, rendezvous room in the Writers Hotel, where writers would just go and hang out. It was like a speakeasy. You had to knock oh, right. a certain code on the door. Yeah. And after nine or ten at night, th- there was a party there every, every night uh, with food and booze laid laid on. And I thought, gee, this feels to me like the nineteen seventies.
0: <laughs> it was a real retro feel. Right. It was it was great. <laughs> Yes, no, I, I do remember those days myself. Uh, <laughs> uh, McPhee Gribble used to have a, uh, an annual Christmas party which was um, legendary. And, uh, like the Alan Unwin one. Did you ever go yes, to any of I the I haven't Alan been Unwin? to one of those. I'm
1: a Melbourne boy. So. Right. <laughs> um, I used to fly down from Brisbane for the Alan Unwin ones. They you? were so good. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, just, so you've obviously had a pretty interesting and enjoyable career if you think back and what's what's the highlights of um,
1: two highlights would be working with incredibly talented writers but also incredibly talented editors like Roger MacDonald Darcy Randall who was my successor as fiction editor at UQP the thing that I suppose I'm I'm most pleased to have helped uh get going is the uh the indigenous list at Uqp mm. and the the annual award the david Unipin award yeah. which f- feeds into that list mm. and it's it's now after twenty nearly 25 years um, it's the uqp's uh, black writing list is the most significant in the
0: country mm. no that's terrific and uh the most recent book, I think, that Ellen Banner in this collection is... Uh, she is so talented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <we're, laughs> it, I, I mean, that, the,
1: I've got to know Ellen a, a bit and, in fact, uh, my publisher, Scribe, gave my book to Ellen to uh, to read and, and mm-hmm. uh, she gave them a quote for the, for the back, right. back cover. But... Uh, She is so talented, not just as a writer but as an editor and this is one of the things that I think that all uh, writers need to develop a self-editing. The the best writers are good self-editors but the best editors also either write or try to write so Mm. that they can understand Mm. how difficult writing is because writing is probably... The single most difficult thing writing well is the, the single most mm. difficult thing that uh, that I can uh, imagine. You know, it's up there with, um, doing a tightrope <laughs> walk between the uh, twin uh, twin towers of the World Trade Center mm. when they were still standing.
0: Mm. <laughs> well, that's terrific. Um, just so now you've. You're out of publishing now. You've, you've yourself. You've become a writer, haven't you? Really, in a sense, you've written um, four books, is it now, Or three? I,
1: I've written or edited about four yeah. four books. I
0: and uh, all about the publishing industry. That's right. Yeah, well, that's uh, my that's, that's my your, shtick. Yeah, and um, you mentioned before that you've got another one planned. Yes, I've I've got
1: uh, a sequel to Undercover. Uh, which I'm still looking for a title for. I'm thinking maybe Blue Pencil Warriors, <laughs> right. book editors who made publishing history, is, right. uh, and it'll be chapter by chapter looking at uh, well-known Australian writers and the editors that they've worked with mm. over mm. over about uh, a
0: century. Right. Well, that's terrific. Thank you so much, um, Craig. It's been wonderful talking to you. And. Been- I guess we could go on for hours, but we'd probably bore people. But uh,
1: yeah, well, I'm hoping to catch up with my son, who's going to meet me at uh, at your shop in about right. 15 minutes. Okay.
0: <laughs> so, thank you very much. And, um, it's been wonderful having you on our little program.
1: Thank you very much. I've appreciated the uh, the conversation.